In 2007, director David Fincher helmed the movie simply entitled Zodiac, which tells the thrilling story of a rash of killings in the 1960s and 70s. The film, as far as Hollywood is concerned, was not a success, especially considering some of Fincher's other films like Fight Club, Seven, and The Social Network that became cult classics for many. Fincher's Zodiac cost about $65 million to make, and only earned back half of that, despite starring some of Hollywood's hottest talent, including Jake Gyllenhaal, and pre-Marvel superheroes Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. Despite the film's failure at the box office, the subject is one that seems to pique the public's interest whenever it's mentioned. In fact, it was just a few months ago during this year's presidential race in the United States when an internet meme led to a conspiracy that Republican Senator Ted Cruz was perhaps the infamous serial killer known only as the Zodiac Killer. The conspiracy grew enough attention that Cruz's own wife replied to the comments, and of course she denied the claim. While it is silly to assume that Cruz, who was born in 1970, is a serial killer who has murders attributed to them going back to as far as the late 1960s before Cruz was born, the Zodiac Killer is one of those mysteries that keeps people wondering. Perhaps it's because, to this day, it's still unexplained. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Seventeen-year-old David Faraday turned the heat up just a little bit more. His car took a while to warm up, but he didn't mind. Any heat that his trusty rambler could provide would help against the chill as the evening gave way to night. David glanced over to the passenger seat and couldn't help but smile. He was ecstatic. He'd finally convinced Betty to go out with him. She was only a year younger, and he'd tried numerous times to catch her attention. Finally, she'd agreed. It was their first date. In fact, it was Betty's first date with anyone, ever. Of course, this wasn't exactly what she'd agreed to. She'd agreed to go to the Christmas concert at their school, Hogan High. An innocent enough first date. Instead, they decided to get a bite to eat. So they went to one of the local places, Mr. Ed's. It was a popular joint, and David and Betty certainly didn't stand out from the rest of the teenagers chowing down. They got caught up talking, and before they knew it, the sun had started to set. It was too late to go to the concert, but they didn't want the night to end. They enjoyed each other's company. So they decided to go somewhere away from the crowds. Everyone knew of the secluded area near Lake Herman, called Lover's Lane. Well, that's what the kids called it. Really, though, it was Lake Herman Road in Vallejo, right next to what's now the Blue Rock Springs Golf Course. As they turned off toward the lake, 
David put his hand out. Betty cautiously put her hand in his. He gave a little squeeze as he smiled at her. They arrived at the turnoff, parked, and took in the silence for a moment. It didn't take long for the two teenagers to lose track of time. It was 11 p.m. At 11.28 p.m., Captain Daniel Pita of the Vallejo Police Department pulled his own car behind David's rambler. He winced. David was laying on the ground about 90 degrees to the right rear passenger side wheel. He had sustained a gunshot wound just behind his left ear, but he was still alive. Betty had been shot multiple times. She was dead. An ambulance rushed David to the nearby Vallejo Hospital, but it was too late. At 12.05 a.m. on December 21, 1968, David Faraday was pronounced dead. Back at the crime scene, Captain Peter was stumped. Because it was so cold, about 22 degrees, the ground was too cold to leave any tire tracks or footprints. The police had to rely on the recollection of those who passed by the turnoff, the placement of the nine bullet casings left at the scene, and of course, the two bodies of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen. To the north, closest to the road, was David's Rambler. It parked on a turnoff just in front of a bank, providing a nice overlook of the city. It was almost parallel to the bend in the road. To the right, just south of David's car, is where the killer's car was most likely parked. It was parallel to David's car, also parked with the front to the slope. There weren't any other cars parked there at the time, although it was a popular spot for the teenagers to park, so it's possible that others may have been there at the time. We'll never know for sure. Actually, we don't know for sure what happened at all. What we do know is that there were nine bullet casings found south of David's car. Another clue was that five bullets hit Betty, one hit David, and two bullets were recovered from the car. That's eight bullets, but there were nine casings. So police concluded one shot must have been made in the air as an initial warning shot. That was likely the first shot, freezing the couple in place. Terrified, both David and Betty exited the car on the passenger side. Since this is the same side as the killer's car, it's likely that they were asked to do so. He wouldn't want to exit on the same side on purpose. That's when the second shot, most likely, hit David in his head, just by his left ear. Terrified, Betty ran west along the road. She didn't make it as she was hit five times. Some have speculated the killer chased her, but all of the casings were found in one place, so it's not likely that the killer chased her. Instead, it's most likely that he stood over David and shot Betty in the back as she ran. David was helpless as he lay bleeding, just to the south of the right rear passenger side wheel of his car. None of this was depicted in the movie. As is often the case, this horrific act would start to drift away from the public's eye until a little over six months later. On July 5, 1969, a police dispatcher named Nancy Slover received a phone call that would bring it back into the public's eye. In the call, a calm and monotone voice said, quote, I wish to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east 
on Columbus Parkway to a public park, you will find the kids in a brown car. They have been shot by a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. End quote. When police traced the call, they found it had been made at a payphone just a few blocks from the police department. And although they didn't know who she was at the time, less than a mile from Darlene Farron's home. And just like that, there was a connection between David and Betty's death and a new crime at Blue Rock Springs Park, just a couple miles from where David and Betty were attacked. As the caller indicated, the new crime was also a double murder. The victims were also very young, Michael McGow being only 19 and Darlene Farron only 22. The couple was shot just before midnight on July 4, 1969, or about 40 minutes before Nancy received the 911 call. And it was this murder where the movie starts, not with the murders of David and Betty. Just like in the movie, Michael McGow actually survived the attack despite being shot multiple times. Darlene did not. Michael was able to describe the killer, well, about as well as can be expected for someone who was shot and didn't see much to begin with. One of the reasons he didn't see much is because the killer used a high-powered flashlight to shine right into their faces, very similar to what we saw in the movie. About a month after Michael and Darlene were attacked on July 31, 1969, three newspapers in the area, the San Francisco Examiner, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Vallejo Times Herald all received letters from someone claiming to be the killer. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. There was no name on the letters, only a crossed circle. The letters weren't exactly the same, though, and instead were meant to be combined together, each newspaper receiving only one-third of the message. To make things even more strange, the message was encoded. 
The only part of the letter that wasn't encoded was enough details about the murders to believe the claim to be real, as well as a demand to the newspapers that they print the encoded cipher or else there'd be more killings. Before jumping to print the ciphers, the police called in Navy cryptographers. No success in breaking the cipher. They called in the FBI to see if they could break the code. Also no success. Finally, with time running out when the killer expected the ciphers to show up in the paper, and out of fear that there would be more bloodshed, the papers did as they were asked and printed the ciphers. Just like in the movie, all three newspapers printed the cipher and simultaneously terrified the public. Now, the movie mostly centers around Robert Graysmith, who's played by Jake Gyllenhaal and is a cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle. And just like in the movie, Mr. Graysmith became obsessed with the killer's encoded messages. So much so that after the events in the movie, he'd go on to write dozens of books as he shifted his career away from cartoonist to true crime author. The police didn't have much to go off of, so they made public statements that they doubted the authenticity of the letters. In truth, they didn't, but they wanted the killer to contact them again in hopes that they'd get more information. It worked. Four days later, on August 4th, 1969, exactly one month after a man made a 911 call to Nancy to claim credit for the murders of David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, and Darlene Farron, as well as the attempted murder of Michael McGow, another letter was sent to the examiner. This time, the killer started the letter by saying, quote, This is the Zodiac speaking, end quote. And in so doing, gave himself a name, Zodiac. Along with his new name, Zodiac also gave some more information about the murders to prove he was there, and also added that his identity was included in the ciphers. Again, four days later, a man by the name of Donald Hardin, along with his wife, Betty, called the San Francisco Police Department with what they claimed was the solution to the cipher in the three newspapers. At first, the police were suspicious. Had Donald, a high school teacher, really cracked the code that the police, the Navy, the FBI couldn't? Donald explained how he and his wife had cracked the code. They assumed the person who submitted the code was egotistical, so they just guessed that the first letter would be an I. After that, they also assumed the word kill would be in the message, so they looked for the symbol that they assumed was I in a word with two L's next to each other. After that, it didn't take long to start breaking the rest of the code. The Navy's cryptographers verified the solution, and two of the newspapers, the San Francisco Chronicle and the Vallejo Times Herald, published the solution. Here's what the decoded cipher said. Quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part is that when they die, I will be reborn in paradise and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow me down or stop my collecting of slaves from my afterlife. 
end quote. Needless to say, it was a chilling message. It's still chilling decades later. Now, it's important to point out that there's a slew of misspellings in the cipher, so it's certainly something that you need to read. I'll include it in the transcript for this episode, but you can find it on various websites online as well. For example, the word dangerous was really spelled D-A-N-G-E-R-T-U-E, but police assumed that it was supposed to be dangerous. Now, and at the end, there's 18 characters that Donald, Betty, or anybody else could not decipher. They were E-B-E-O-R-I-E-T-E-M-E-T-H-H-P-I-T-I. Again, I'll include this in the transcript. What were those 18 characters? Could they be the killer's name? After all, the Zodiac had said his identity was in the cipher, but it wasn't. And we don't know what those last 18 characters stand for. The closest anyone has come to is an anagram for Robert Emmett, the hippie. But even then, you'd have to add three extra letters. It's hardly enough information to be conclusive. Now, this wasn't mentioned in the movie, but at the time, the police, who were looking into just about everyone as a potential suspect, thought that perhaps Donald Hardin could be the killer, the man who cracked the code. Not only because of the ability to decipher something that the police, Navy, and FBI couldn't do, but also because of some random facts that seemed to tie them together. For example, the Zodiac cipher was called 408 and had 54 unique symbols. The Hardens used to live in the 408 area code in California and on 54 Chestnut Street. But this was circumstantial. The police were grabbing at anything they could. In the movie, the next killings took place at another lake, this time 60 miles from Lake Herman, where the first three murders took place. The events in the movie are fairly accurate, and in truth, the attack took place at Lake Berryessa in Napa County. Perhaps one of the reasons why the events for this killing are more accurate in the movie is because one of the people attacked did actually survive to recount it to the police. Again, it was a couple that was attacked. This time, it was 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard and 20-year-old Brian Hartnell. The couple, which were both students at the nearby Pacific Union College, a Christian liberal arts college in Napa Valley, had traveled to the lake to enjoy the beautiful lake and picnic on the shore. Just like in the movie, while they were enjoying a sunny California day on the lake's secluded beach, they were approached by a man wearing a hooded costume with a crossed circle symbol, the same symbol used by the Zodiac in his letters, although the couple certainly didn't realize it at the time. As he neared the frightened couple, the man in the hood pulled a gun and explained he intended to rob them. To make his escape, he said, they'd have to tie each other up. So just like in the movie, the couple tied each other up so, as they thought, the man could make an escape with their possessions. Instead, just as they thought the ordeal was over, the Zodiac viciously stabbed the couple in the back. Then he simply walked away and left them writhing in agony. In the movie, we see markings on the couple's car. In truth, the couple's car was about 500 yards from where they were attacked, 
up an embankment by Knoxville Road, so the killer had to have hiked back up there to leave the markings on the car, and this actually happened. Since the other Zodiac killings were done with a gun, the writing on the car is how the police knew the Zodiac was responsible for this knife attack. The writing said, quote, Vallejo, 122068, 7469, September 2769630 by knife, end quote. Again, this will all be in the transcript. About an hour after the attack at 7.40 p.m., the Napa County Police Department received a call from a phone booth just a few blocks from the department. It was an officer named David Slight who took the call and listened to someone in a low, monotone voice say, quote, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, end quote. When Officer Slate asked for the man to provide his location, the voice replied, quote, I'm the one who did it, end quote. Then the line went dead. After this attack, the movie jumps to what is the final murder attributed to the Zodiac, in the movie, it's a cab driver on the corner of Washington and Cherry Streets in San Francisco, which is just one block from Madison Elementary School, now named Claire Lilenthal Elementary. This is true, and it's one that baffled the police because it breaks a number of molds for the Zodiac. Up to this point, Zodiac had attacked couples and mostly in secluded areas. This time, it was a 29-year-old cab driver by the name of Paul Stein who was shot once from point-blank range in the head. Even though it happened pretty late at about 9.55 p.m., being in the busy Presidio District in San Francisco, there were three people who came forward as witnesses to the attack. When they called police, their description matched each other. It was that of a white male, 25 to 30 years old, about 5'8", with a stocky build, reddish-brown hair and a crew cut, wearing heavy-rimmed glasses and dark clothes. The witnesses reported last seeing the attacker casually walking north on Cherry Street. That's when a major mistake was made by the police dispatcher. When they relayed this information to the officers nearby, they described the attacker as a black male adult. Because of this botched description, two officers, Donald Folk and Eric Zelms, let a man who fit the description perfectly go. They saw him walking east on Jackson Street, just one block north of Washington Street. This case was assigned to inspectors Dave Toski and Bill Armstrong, who in the movie are played by Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, respectively. And at first, they didn't think it had anything to do with the Zodiac Killer. It didn't fit the mold. Stein's wallet and keys were taken by the killer, and a large portion of his shirt was missing. But it wasn't just ripped haphazardly, it was very carefully torn. The inspectors thought that it was just a robbery gone wrong. Two days after the killing, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from Zodiac. In the letter, which claimed responsibility for Stein's killing, was a portion of Stein's shirt as proof. The Zodiac also went on to claim he talked to officers Folk and Zelms. Although he didn't know their names, 
saying that he led them in a different direction. This is something Folk and Zelms both denied, saying they never talked to the man that they saw on Jefferson Street because he didn't fit the description. Just about everything that happens after this in the movie is circumstantial. That is to say, there's no proof of any of this being linked to the Zodiac or even to each other. The mother who got in the car with a stranger who said he was going to kill her after he offered to help with her car's wheel. The calls to the lawyer, Melvin Belly, who is played by Brian Cox in the movie. These events all happened. Someone did call into the Jim Dunbar talk show with Melvin Belly, saying a few words and hanging up over 50 times in a two-hour period. But the police have never been able to prove that the person who called was the Zodiac. The conclusions in the movie are largely based on those from Robert Graysmith's book. Now, it's in this book that Graysmith draws the conclusion that the Zodiac Killer was a man by the name of Arthur Lee Allen, who's played by John Carroll Lynch in the movie. In truth, there are thousands of suspects in the Zodiac Killer case, and it's a case that, to this day, is still officially unsolved. That said, Arthur Lee Allen is widely believed to be one of those at the top of the list of suspects. Allen's connection to the Zodiac started with a murder that was suspected to be the Zodiac, but never officially tied to the case. In truth, seven victims, five of whom died, are the only ones officially attributed to Zodiac. David Faraday, Betty Lou Jensen, Darlene Farron, Cecilia Shepard, and Paul Stein are the murder victims. Michael McGow and Brian Hartnell are the two that survived attacks from Zodiac. But the Zodiac killer claimed to have 37 murder victims, although the police have never been able to confirm the others. So when trying to identify the Zodiac killer, it would make sense that there would be ties to other deaths, perhaps one of the other 37 the Zodiac claimed to have killed. And that's where Arthur Lee Allen's connection to the Zodiac Killer started. It was a murder that wasn't in the movie, and so we haven't really talked about it. Sherry Jo Bates, who was stabbed to death at Riverside City College in Riverside, California, on October 30th, 1966. That's two years before David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen's murders. The day after Sherry's murder, November 1st, Allen was out of work on a, quote, sick day. End quote. Or did he skip the next day at work because of the facial wounds the FBI believed that Sherry would have left on her attacker? When Sherry was killed, Allen would have been 32 years old. He lived at 32 Fresno Street in Vallejo, and a few years later, the Zodiac cipher would contain 32 symbols. Just like in the movie, Allen did have a watch from the Zodiac brand. It was given to him by his mother as a Christmas gift in 1967, or so his brother Ron says. That watch did have a crossed circle symbol that the Zodiac Killer used. One of Alan's friends, Don Cheney, also made the claim that he had a conversation on New Year's Day in 1969 with Alan about a novel Alan was going to write. According to Cheney, Alan said the novel would be about a killer. Quote, he would like to kill couples at random. He would taunt police with letters detailing his crimes. He would sign the letters with a cross circle symbol from his watch. He would call himself Zodiac. 
He would wear makeup to change his appearance. He would attach a flashlight to the barrel of his gun in order to shoot at night. He would fool women into stopping their cars in rural areas by claiming they had problems with their tires, then loosen their lug nuts and eventually take them captive." End quote. When Cheney took this to the police, they issued a search of Allen's home at 32 Fresno Street in Vallejo, but found nothing that could connect Allen to the murders. In 1992, any hopes of a confession from Allen disappeared when he passed away from a combination of diabetes and heart problems. He was 58. There certainly are some connections between Arthur Lee Allen and the Zodiac killings, and those are just a few of the connections that there are. But it's never been proven, and there's actually similar connections with some other suspects. Another suspect, Richard Gajkowski, was the editor of an anti-police and pro-violence newspaper in San Francisco called The Good Times, which ran works of fiction in 1969 that were almost an identical blueprint for the Zodiac killings before they ever actually happened. Some of Gajkowski's published works in his paper would include a shortening of his name to Geik, G-I-K-E, or Geik, G-A-I-K. In the three-part cipher sent to the San Francisco Chronicle, Examiner, and Vallejo Times-Herald, you can clearly see the letters Geik, G-Y-K-E, in them, and that is without decrypting them. And if you remember... The Zodiac did say that his name was in the cipher. Gajkowski was also identified as having attended Paul Stein's funeral by Paul's sister, Carol. And what's more, Nancy Slover, the 911 dispatcher who was the first to receive the call from the Zodiac after the murders of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, identified Gajkowski's voice as the one that she heard on the phone. And there's more suspects. Lawrence Kane was identified by Darlene Farron's sister as following Darlene for months before her murder. Kane was diagnosed in 1965 by a psychologist as, quote, losing the ability to control self-gratification, end quote. Or there's Rick Marshall, an engineer at San Francisco's KTIM radio station who lived both near Sherry Joe Bates at the time of her murder in Riverside, California, and just a few miles from the murder scene of Paul Stein in San Francisco. KTIM symbols are eerily similar to some of the symbols from the Zodiac ciphers. Some have even suspected the convicted Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, since he lived in San Francisco at the time and was known to have communicated with the newspapers and media after committing murder. But who was the actual Zodiac killer? We want to connect the dots. We want to find connections. Some suspects have a lot of dots to connect. Others have a few. There's even a number of suspects that have come out of the woodwork with seemingly no connection. For example, there's Gary Stewart, who was adopted at a young age. He began looking for his biological father, and his search ended in a man named Earl Van Best Jr., who Gary claims to be the Zodiac Killer. Is there a connection? Perhaps, although it does look suspicious that this connection pops up in a book, so there's obvious financial benefits for Gary's search. In other words, no one would buy a book if Earl Van Best Jr. had been just another bad father who'd given up his son for adoption. It's human nature to want to find a connection. As much as we may want to connect the dots, 
and as many dots as some suspects seem to have that do connect to what we know about the Zodiac Killer, to this day, we don't know. The final confirmed communication from the Zodiac came on November 8, 1969. It was the fourth cipher sent to the Chronicle from the Zodiac, and it contained 340 symbols. No matter how hard they tried, no one was able to crack it. After the movie was released, the Zodiac's unsolved cipher came back into the public spotlight. Since the first three-part Zodiac cipher had been cracked by amateurs, why not the last? It was because of the movie that Corey Starlipper's hobby of cracking codes paid off. In 2011, he claimed to have solved the Zodiac's final cipher. It took Starlipper nine hours to crack what he believes is the final message from the Zodiac. Like the other Zodiac ciphers, it's not cohesive writing, so I would highly recommend reading this either in the transcript for this episode or you can find it online. It reads, quote, Kill self. Doctor, help me kill myself. Gas chamber for days questionable. Every waking moment I'm alive. My pride lost. I can't go on living in this way. Killing people. I've killed so many people. Can't help myself. I'm so angry. I could do my thing. I'm alone in this world. My whole life full of lies. I'm unable to stop. By the time you solve this, I will have killed 11 people. Please help me stop killing people. Please. My name is Lee Allen. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. The case of the Zodiac Killer has simultaneously horrified and fascinated people for over 40 years. As a result, there's a wealth of information out there. Unfortunately, there's not a satisfying ending. We don't know who the Zodiac Killer was. Is he still alive? Has he passed? I would really recommend reading Mr. Graysmith's book on the subject. It's filled with tons of detail and can be a great launching point for anyone interested in digging deeper into this true crime mystery. Mr. Graysmith, who's still alive today, wrote the book that the 2007 movie is based on entitled Zodiac, the full story of the infamous unsolved Zodiac murders in California. The book was published in 1986 and kicked off a fairly successful career change from cartoonist to true crime author of a dozen books for Mr. Graysmith. As with all episodes, the transcript of this episode is available in Kindle edition on Amazon. If you're like me, sometimes reading the ciphers and all their original misspellings can be more intriguing, and your purchase of the transcripts helps balance the costs of keeping this show going, so thank you very much in advance. You can find Based on a True Story on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, where you'll find links to the transcripts for each episode. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-A-B. Reach out and say hi. 